Welcome back to the Verbatim Word Podcast, where we seek biblical truth in a daily context. This is Justin Gary. There is nothing quite like enjoying a good view. Think about the efforts we will go to in order to take in a view. We strain and go to extremes to hike stairs or mountains and press onward and upward to get a glimpse of some spectacular hilltop view. Or we are willing to drive winding roads at slow speeds and put strain on our vehicle's engine and low gears gaining elevation and wearing out our brakes on the way down to see a breathtaking vista from a bird's eye view. Or we are willing to pay more for a hotel room with all the same amenities as a cheaper one to be able to sit on the balcony and gaze out on a view that makes us forget the corporate woes that typically make up our day-to-day lives back home. Even as kids, we enjoy the view. The thrill of being whisked up on our parents' shoulders and catching the view from up above for a change. Or the temptation to climb to the top of a tree to be able to see a bit more clearer, perched up in the highest limbs. There's just something about enjoying the view. Paul takes us there in the New Testament book of Ephesians. He writes to give us a view and perspective that many of us may often lose sight of in the day-to-day drudgery of life. He whisks us up for a quick peek at the view of who God is, who we are, and the realities and truths of the universe that we so easily forget. But gazing the view is not just about theology, not just to allow us some esoteric philosophical material to muse over or crawl through in some deep theological discourse. There are some deep verses in this book. But enjoying this view is meant to change and transform us to live now, differently based upon what and who we will see in these verses. Ephesians presents us a beautiful view of who God is, who we are, and what that means for us today and on into eternity. What's your view currently? In the Old Testament book of Numbers, the nation of Israel was near the border of the Promised Land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and they sent in 12 spies to view what the land contained. Upon returning to the congregation, they shared about the magnificence of the land, as well as the challenges the land could possess. Most of those spies, and as a result, the whole nation of Israel, chose to focus on the hardships that might await them, and they were blinded from seeing the good and blessed possibilities of the land. But two spies, Joshua and Caleb, saw it differently. Their view was different, and they said, let's go in. They had a different view and saw things the way God saw them, and it made all the difference. In fact, all the others died, every single one without ever getting close to see the goodness of the land, drowning the drudgery of the wilderness they trekked through for 40 years. But the two who got a good look at the view, the same view that God saw, made it through to the other side and entered the promised land. They had the motivation to enter into all the good that God had for them. Let's face it, we all need a good view right about now in the world. A moment to appreciate the horizon and catch our breath, to go back down and continue pressing onward. So with that, we begin a new study on verbatim word in the book of Ephesians, to enjoy the view that can change everything. Paul is the author of the epistle, or the letter, to the Ephesians, and he writes in verses 1 and 2, Paul 
an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In the letters of those days, the authors introduced themselves at the start. And Paul calls himself the Apostle of Jesus Christ. An apostle, one who is sent. Paul was an ambassador. And as we saw earlier this season in our study of the book of Galatians, God had a view of Paul's life as an apostle long before Paul saw that calling himself. Paul, or Saul as he had been known, hated Jesus and hated the church until he was converted on the road to Damascus, where God revealed through a man named Ananias that the Lord had a call on Paul's life to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. It's no wonder that God can call things about our lives before we can, and it takes us some time to figure things out, his plans and purposes for us. But when we wise up and finally figure it out, we usually see that God has been clued in long before we were, and we see everything line up for us to fulfill his plan for us. I totally saw that put into play in the story of how my wife and I ended up together. If you haven't listened to both of last week's episodes, I touch on it a bit, so you might go back and listen when you get a chance. But God clearly knew how he planned to line me up with my spouse long before I was clued in. And I think he loves it when we finally catch on to things. Kind of like if you watch a hidden camera show and they finally let the cat out of the bag, but you've seen it coming all along or a big reveal on some makeover or a home renovation show like on HGTV, or one of those tear-jerking dad comes home from military duty and surprises kid at the school assembly videos that you might see on YouTube. When you are clued into something wonderful and great, just how much joy it brings you to see the other person catch on and finally be in cahoots, that is the Lord's joy in our lives to see us walk in his will for us and finally catch on to what God has been laying the groundwork for all along. Paul never saw apostleship coming, but it totally made sense when the Lord revealed it. As a Pharisee, he knew the scriptures. As a Hellenist, he knew Greek culture and language, the perfect tool to take the gospel effectively to those who needed it. God is up to something in your life, let me assure you. And many of us won't figure it out until later. And that's okay. As he told Israel through Jeremiah in one translation, I know the plans I have for you. They did not know it yet. Why a Babylonian captivity? How long would it be? But God assured them he knew. And God knows for you too. He sees the view. He sees the horizon, even if you can't. But wait a second. Paul is writing this letter to the Ephesians from prison in Rome. He's not yet in the deep, dark dungeon in Rome, but under house arrest like we see in Acts chapter 28. And it's during this time he wrote Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon, known as Paul's prison letters. And if you read the details, Paul was unjustly put in prison. It was unfair. It was based upon false evidence and political maneuvering. Where was justice? He is God's apostle, by the will of God, after all. How could God let this happen? That's a question we wrestle with a lot in our lives in the world today, isn't it? You know, bad things happen to good people because we are in a fallen world. 
And what's even more surprising for us sometimes is that when God lets bad or harsh or unjust things happen in our lives, he still gets glory somehow. We, of course, would never order bad stuff from the menu of life if it were up to us. We would write our own stories to have only highlights, not lowlights. Smooth sailing, abundant blessing, all Fridays and no Mondays. But if you get God's view, God's perspective, you see a few things. The hard parts of life are when we cry out and call out for Him. It's the challenging parts that make us realize how much we need Him. And it amazes us to see how He can still work and does work His ultimate, eternal, glorious purposes, even in the hard, challenging, unjust, unfair seasons of our lives. I so enjoyed watching the Jeremy Camp biographical movie, I Still Believe, recently, and how God somehow used and blessed circumstances that were pretty much a bummer all around. And that happens in many of our stories. The things that are hard or seem unjust or unfair, in the end, we see that that's when we've been walking closest with God and God gets the glory for doing something magnificent that he can only do, making beauty out of ashes. Paul is an apostle by the will of God. And at the time of this writing, God's will has him unjustly shut up in prison. But Paul stops and believes God must have some perspective that he himself does not. And he is okay with it because Paul has come to believe in God's sovereignty, that God is in control. No matter what the world or circumstances or society or man threw his way, Paul trusted Jesus. He wrote about it in Romans 8, verses 38 and 39. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul was persuaded by it. Interesting, he wrote those words I just read before coming to Rome, before imprisonment. I wonder if he could still say them. Or now that he was going through a rougher patch, did he feel tempted to take back those words, doubting God's love and purposes for him? To trust in the sovereignty of God is freeing. And rather than being bound up in questioning our lives or circumstances or tiring effortlessly to wrangle our way out of our situation with the blind belief that the grass will be greener if we can just change things up, we can rest in the fact that God loves me, that he has a plan and a purpose, and that we can endure the situation he has us in, and that if he chooses to export us from that place, he can and he will. I do not know what you are wrestling with in life right now, but can I encourage you to embrace God's sovereignty and release yourself to God's will for you? I do not mean to settle or grow complacent or settle for second best, but instead to take the energy spent on trying to flee or protest your circumstances or wrestle with God and instead embrace him and his will and seek his plan and purpose for your season as you trust in him and his sovereignty. As Paul mentioned in verse 1, he is writing to the saints in Ephesus. First of all, let's talk about Ephesus. It was known for trade. They had a busy harbor, a very wealthy city. 
It was the banking capital of the world at that time. Think Wall Street. And with that wealth, money, opulent living, and lots of people coming and going, because the trade routes of the world brought different people and cultures to cross paths there, there were different people and cultures. That also means opposing views, values, religion, politics, and probably conflict with all the diversity. It was also home to a temple to Diana, and the temple was huge. It was four times greater than the Parthenon in Athens. It had 127 tall, sturdy pillars. And the worship of Diana was not your average, quaint, conservative religious service. It involved a horde of temple prostitutes. So you can imagine the wicked practices and immorality of that town. There were dark things going on in that town. Occultic practices. In Acts 19, it tells us that after hearing the gospel, Ephesus was changed drastically. Apparently, the sale of Diana idols dropped, and it caused quite a stir amongst the craftsmen. They were leading protests and riots out of fear that Christianity would permanently transform the culture and with it the economy of the town. What's more, the former magicians brought their spell books and burned them, totaling 50,000 pieces of silver. That is some cash. You can imagine how much occultic practice was going on there. It's to these transformed people, now born again, that Paul writes, to the saints who are in Ephesus. By man's accounts, that city and those people were lost. But not from God's view. He saw them as sinners in need of a Savior. He saw the multitudes and was moved to compassion for them, much as Jesus did when he viewed the multitudes. Five times in the Gospels, three times in Matthew and twice in Mark, Scripture tells us about compassion. But when he, Jesus, saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Another verse. And when Jesus went out, he saw a great multitude and he was moved with compassion for them and healed their sick. Another verse still, then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. Still another verse, then Jesus moved with compassion, stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. And one more, and Jesus, when he came out, saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion for them because they were like sheep having no shepherd. So he began to teach them many things. Oh, the ways God will move as a result of his compassion. And from his vantage point of heaven, his perfect view, he can love the most unlovable, even in a place like Ephesus. And those former prostitutes and fornicators and idolaters and shrewd businessmen and protesting opponents of God's own messengers, God could see them as saints before they ever were. What a compassionate God we have. As Paul wrote in Romans 5.8, But God demonstrates his own love toward us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Making provision for sinners like us to be called saints, long before we were ready even to accept it or receive it. And it's amazing to see who the Lord sees as saints. 
It's contrasted to our typical understanding of the concept. A saint is traditionally one who is dead in some form of religion and was used by God, some miracles attributed to their life or ministry, venerated holy ones on a far higher plane than the average Christian next door who still struggles with the daily living of their faith. But it's the latter who the Lord sees and calls saints. Saint means set apart. Those who have left the old life of pagan temples and worship and false spiritual practices and materialistic selfishness and have a new life in Jesus. Those are the saints the Lord looks upon and to whom Paul writes in his letter. And saint is also a term that applies to you if you believe in Jesus for your forgiveness. The sinner you once were is now seen in God's eyes as a saint worthy of his kingdom. Now that we have established who the letter was from and to, Paul greets by saying in verse 2, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This was a standard greeting from Paul. Grace and peace. Grace is the Greek word charis, a typical greeting among the Greeks. Passing in the streets, they would call out charis, which meant unmerited favor. Have favor today that you don't deserve, they would call out to one another. Now, peace is a Hebrew greeting, shalom, a typical greeting between Jews, peace. Get this, two greetings on the street. One is Gentile, charis, and one is Jew, shalom. This would grate against the ears of both groups most likely to hear the other greeted in their language in the same breath because those two groups did not get along. Talk about racial tension. The racial tension between those two groups could rival any of today. These two cultures were in opposition. There was tension between them like no other. But Paul ignores that. Because from God's view up above, the differences and divisions that man clings to or hides behind make no difference in heaven. God sees no divisions on earth. He sees no races from heaven, just one race, the human race. And he has no partiality between groups, none placed above the other. And we are all fallen and all in need of a Savior, Christ alone. And it doesn't matter to God who man calls us or sees us as. He discriminated not against Jew nor Greek, but made the way for both to receive forgiveness and have a relationship with the eternal God by the death and resurrection of the perfect sacrifice, Jesus Christ. So Paul declares grace in Greek and peace in Hebrew because these two groups could finally have peace because of what Jesus did. They were both guilty. They were both wrong. And they were both in need of a Savior. This was huge. The Jews felt that they were elite and privileged because they had had the favor of God all along. And the Greeks felt they were justified and not guilty of anything because, well, they were wise, enlightened, and civil Greeks. But both were sinners, fallen short of the glory of God. Ephesus was a divided city, full of irreconcilable diversity. But Paul caught God's view and he saw a unity in the kingdom people from every tongue and tribe and nation, where there was neither Jew nor Greek, because all men are equal at the foot of the cross. I remember in college at the University of Hawaii, yearly the NBA would play exhibition games at the Rainbow Classic Tournament. 
And the L.A. Lakers were at the peak of their popularity in the late 1990s, led by the towering presence of Shaquille O'Neal. And they came there to Honolulu to play the game. Shaquille O'Neal, the guy was seven foot, one inch tall. He had a size 22 shoe. He was a modern day giant. And his hoop skills were not that bad either. I remember watching him play live in the arena. I was down near the floor, so I got a pretty up close and personal view of this guy in action. And while the crowd loved watching him play, the crowd went wild the most each time he dunked the ball through that basket. It was impressive, and the crowd loved it, and Shaq knew it. I remember watching and hearing the crowd going nuts over Shaq. He was good, and I definitely was not good at basketball. I was pretty bad, actually. I remember in seventh grade PE class, I had to stay after class because I was so bad at shooting the basket. My PE teacher would not let me leave until I made a certain number of baskets. I could not shoot for the life of me. Basketball was not the will of God for my life. It was not something God caught a view of for me ever. I was a horrible shot, was five foot something, and had no vertical jump to impress anyone. But Shaq sure did. And Shaq sure could. And I remember there in the arena sitting and, and having a small little revelation as Shaq once again dunked a basket and the crowd went wild. At the cross, all men are equal. At that basket, Shaq and I certainly were not equal. But at the cross, he and I were just the same. At the cross, all differences are erased. At the cross, seven foot one, size 22 shoe, dunk champion Shaq and I were on the same playing field before God. The things that man gets all riled up over dissipate before the cross. The talents or abilities or advantages or privileges that man keeps score with mean nothing at the foot of the cross. It is level playing field. And from God's perspective, that is the fairest way to have it. So this leaves no room for excuses or pointing fingers or envy or self-pity because from God's view in the stands, we are all the same at the foot of the cross. That is one of the only things that is fair in life. Once Paul had written his introduction, he moves into the first section of his letter. And Paul is pumped to show the readers what he wants to show them. Ever talk to someone who is really excited about something and they just start gushing so much about whatever it is and they give so much information that it is almost overwhelming to listen and you need to, need to stop them and have them repeat or slow down or fill in the details because you're missing it all. Well, Paul is so thrilled to paint a picture of what God sees that the next 11 verses in the original Greek are one long run-on sentence. No periods. Try getting it out in one breath and it is impossible. There is so much goodness, Paul couldn't figure out where to pause. You see, he is talking about his favorite subject, God. And in these verses, he talks about God the Father, then Christ the Son, then the Holy Spirit. And he's got so much to say, and in reality, it all connects, that it's just one long stream of goodness. Now, we will not tackle that all today. We'll begin to take a look at the first part, though, about God the Father. He writes in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. In case you missed it, blessing is a main focus of the verse, mentioned three times in fact. First of all, God the Father should be blessed. 
we usually tend to make ourselves the focus of blessing. We desire, seek, pray for, expect, and anticipate a blessing. And we say, oh, I am so blessed when things go well. And the verse does mention us being blessed. But more important to Paul is that we should be blessing God, praising him, honoring him, exalting him, blessing his name. And Paul makes that point before even telling us anything that God has done. It is natural for us to bless God when we feel he deserves it, when he has been good to us, faithful to us, gracious to us. Blessing is something we will naturally pour out. But Paul calls on us first to bless God, even before Paul writes for us any reasons to bless him. It is why we were created, to worship God, to bless his name, in spite of our lives and circumstances, our emotions or feelings. From our view down here, God is only worthy to bless when he is behaving himself well on our behalf, and quite honest, working things out the way we want them to. But the minute God steps out of line, according to our opinions of how things should go, of course, we withhold blessing from him. In the day that Job lost everything in the Old Testament, he lost his flocks, his servants, his home, his own children. Wave after wave of natural disaster and injustice and loss and confusion. It tells us in Job 1 that he tore his robe and shaved his head. He was mourning his losses. But the text goes on that Job fell to the ground and worshipped and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He blessed the Lord, even when nothing from his vantage point gave reason to. He believed that from God's perspective, there was room to bless. God never deviated from his good nature, his loving heart for Job. He blessed the Lord even before anything in life gave way in that direction. Once Paul has established that the Father is worthy of blessing, even before he blesses us, Paul reminds us in verse 3 that he is a Father who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. The truth is, God does bless us with so much in this life. I've been pondering these verses lately from Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus says, But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. The Father blesses us even when we don't deserve it. The sun rises on us even when we are evil, and as the parallel passage in Luke says, he is kind to the unthankful and the evil. How willing God is to bless us, to be kind to us, even in seasons where we refuse to bless him. He makes the sun rise each day. He sends the rain our way. He sustains life for us, all of us, for the good and the not so good, for his just ones and even the unjust ones, those who are not right with him. He even blesses those who curse him. But notice, while our human viewpoint likes to calculate whether God has blessed us enough in this temporal existence, Paul does not even mention that. He has a different view in mind. 
that the Father has blessed us with every spiritual blessing, he writes, in the heavenly places in Christ. That is definitely not our everyday perspective. We count our blessings and name them one by one as we see them around us. Our kids, our homes, our stuff, our relationships, our health, our pleasures, our successes. Those are the blessings we normally take inventory of when we say our prayers goodnight or at the dinner table. First, there are spiritual blessings that we do not take into view oftentimes. And on top of that, there are more in the heavenly places that we will not even taste, it seems, here during this existence. Every spiritual blessing, they are not always tangible. They're spiritual oftentimes. Think about the blessings of having God's presence with us at all times. Or the blessing of the conviction of the Holy Spirit that warns us and keeps us in line. Or the blessing of prayer that gives us a direct access to God. Or the blessing of peace that surpasses understanding and guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. These are blessings we can't pick up or touch or trade or inventory, but they're invaluable and we do not deserve them. And Paul writes about the blessings in the heavenly places. There are more to come that we will never even experience on this side of eternity. With all the benefits and blessings we have now in this life of knowing Christ, there are more awaiting us in the heavenly places. And I'm not talking about streets of gold and harps, though some of those blessings would be quite amusing to partake in, but the blessings of things like no pain, no tears, no suffering, a whole new existence where the former things have passed away. What a blessing. Or the blessing of companionship. It tells us that the Lord himself will be with us. His hands will wipe away our tears. There will be no need for a sun there because the Lord will be its light right there, access to him. How about the blessing of eternity? Unending time in contrast to the limitations of this finite world where we rush to pack things in and never feel like there's enough time or strain under the constraints of the clock. The blessing of open-ended existence in eternity. Think about another blessing that awaits. We will have no sinful nature. All the struggle with temptation and the flesh will be done. The daily conflict we have with walking in obedience to God or giving into sin will be removed. These are the spiritual blessings in Christ that the Father has given us, either now or in the age to come. And notice, he writes about every blessing. In first grade, my grandmother sent me a gift, some personalized pencils. They had my name engraved on each one of them. I thought it was pretty amazing. I showed them to my friends in class. Now, they did not write any better or erase any better, but they were a special blessing to me. My pencils with my name. And I put them away in my cubbyhole like every orderly first grader should. I was surprised later to find some of my pencils were gone. They were not there. They were missing. So I told my teacher and assumed that they were a loss until I saw a classmate writing with a pencil and something didn't look quite right. This classmate had taken one of my personalized pencils and used a pair of scissors and used the sharp edge of the scissors to scrape off my engraved name. I was disappointed and really confused. Someone wanted my blessing, my personalized blessing. It literally had my name engraved in it but they had to scrape off my name, literally the one thing that made those pencils special. Even my first grade mind discerned how absurd the situation was. 
Well, in this fallen world, we covet the blessings of others and him and ha, because we all don't get the same blessings, whether those blessings be material or temporal in nature, or be things that make us unique from one another, or even the good blessings of life that God gives to even the unthankful, the evil, and the unjust too. We look around at the blessings of others, and we want that blessing too. Ignoring the blessings I have, but instead growing obsessed with those I do not have. And it can make us do some pretty stupid things, like shaving off engraved names from pencils, to try and make it mine or fit it into my life. Paul wrote in verse 3, The Father has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Talk about equality. We get it all. No blessing held back. And from God's perspective, from his view from the throne room in heaven, we all get to experience every blessing. Not one more than the other, but every blessing, and that's in the heavenly realm. From his vantage point, it's as good as mine. But from down here, we get caught up in the timeline of things and wonder why my blessings may not be the same as another's and question how life can be so unfair and wonder why they get pencils and I don't have pencils. In the meantime, being robbed of the opportunity to bless the Father who promises us to hold back no blessing when it truly counts. Not only that, but Paul writes that he has blessed us. The us Paul is referring to, it encompasses the Jews and the Gentiles. The Jews already knew that they were appointed to be the blessed people of God. They had the covenants and the promises. But now Paul is pointing out that the Gentiles are blessed as well. And that God the blesser was sharing the blessing because there was enough to go around. We can get stingy with our blessings because, well, they're for us, right? And if you grew up with siblings in the house, you know what I'm talking about. Hide your Halloween candy, because that is your blessing. And someone will probably take all the good stuff and leave you with the little malt balls or the cheap gum that loses flavor. But with the blessing the Father has for us, the ultimate blessing, there is enough to go around. Because as he finishes in verse 3, all the blessings are in Christ. They're in Him. He'll repeat this about 13 times in this first section. Everything is in Jesus. But today we'll wrap it up by reminding ourselves that when my blessings are wrapped up in him, not in me, then there is plenty for everyone. Our blessings, those that are secure in heaven, are based on what he has done. And there is still room for those who want to partake. So sad in the parable when the master sent for those he invited to attend his feast. And the servant said, Master, it is done as you commanded, and there is still room. Then the master said to the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges, and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. There were empty seats at the table, set up and ready, just needed some to respond to the invitation and come. There is blessing enough in him, in Jesus, to share. Every blessing to enjoy for all of eternity. And the servant is instructed to go out and compel them that they may come in and that the house may be filled. That is our call in the world today, to go out. That implies stepping away from where we normally are and compelling them, inviting them, reasoning with them, persuading them, because God loves a full house. He wants it filled so he may bless completely. 
And if I feel my plate and my portion of blessings is lacking right now, perhaps I'm seeking blessings outside of him, not in him. Every blessing that I am meant to have is in him. We caught the first glimpse of the view today, seeing things from the perspective of the God the Father who blesses us, and what a view it is to enjoy. Growing up on the island of Maui, I lived a short distance from one of the most spectacular views imaginable. I'm talking about Haleakala, the crater, the volcano, 10,000 feet above sea level, where almost one and a half million tourists visit each year getting up hours before daylight to drive up the crazy winding road, freezing in the crisp air to catch a glimpse of the sunrise each day. And the view is spectacular and amazing, a once in a lifetime for many. And to be honest, in the years I lived there growing up, I rarely went up there. I lived so close, it was maybe 45 miles away, a drive of less than an hour and a half. I made it up now and then, but the effort it took to set an alarm, get up before daybreak, drive the winding road, brave the cold, it was easier to hit snooze. And for others, it was a once in a lifetime experience, a view that they just had to see because they never knew if or when they would be back again. How true that is of us as Christians too. The view that Paul wants to show us in Ephesians of God and of who we are and of what is ours in Christ Jesus, is one that we take for granted far too often. We rush through life and all the blessings we do already have and miss the opportunity to gaze for a few minutes at something that makes all the difference. As we study Ephesians together, may the Lord allow us to pause and reflect. May he remove the spiritual cataracts from our eyes and let us see a bit more clearly May he bless us with a stillness in the midst of a turbulent time to ponder and consider. May he bring out new treasures from the storehouses for us to admire. May he revive our hearts to worship him more fully for what we have and even do not have, but more so for who he is and with a greater understanding of that. May he draw our whole lives into Christ that we might fully dwell in him. And may he fill us in new ways and bless us with opportunities to share the view with others who need it desperately. May we experience the blessing of seeing his house be filled with those from the highways and the hedges, with people who may be nothing like us, but who he has set a place for. And may we as believers, like those that were there in Ephesus, be worthy to be called saints, and be faithful in Christ Jesus in all we do, in all we say, in all we believe, and in all the ways that we live. In his name we pray. Amen.